I want to make up for uh, Mr. Hefton and Mr. Hatier about these records that I'm making for them. Now I'm making records for the WPA. Now when you hear them, don't you swing and sway. Don't you fuss, don't you fight. Don't be right, cause these records gonna play all night. Hey, hey, hey. I'm the fish man, and I sell them by the dish pan. I sell them to the rich, and I sell them to the poor. I sell them everywhere I go. I sell them up, I sell them down, I sell them all around this town. Whoa, fish man. Welcome back to Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird, and joined with Sam Backer as usual. And today we're going to be diving into a little bit of history. We'll be discussing FDR's New Deal, but specifically the Federal Music Project, which uh, was a part of the New Deal and set out to employ musicians, conductors, and composers during the Great Depression. Uh, imagine that. Uh, obviously, it was an extraordinary time period where the government actually put artists on their payroll with uh, not just the intention of putting them back to work, but also to culturally enrich people's lives during a massive economic collapse bit hard to imagine now but sam and i did think this subject was relevant to our current time period considering the current mass unemployment we are experiencing in the united states and specifically for this podcast and what we've talked about in the past the lack of revenue streams for musicians and those working in the music industry or even working you know adjacent to the music industry so first you'll hear an interview we did with professor kenneth bendis of Kent University and author of All of This Music Belongs to the Nation, which is a book about the Federal Music Project that he wrote. Then Sam and I afterwards will be discussing more about the project and do that silly thing where we actually imagine a better world and what it would look like if the government did something like that today. But first, here's our interview with Professor Kenneth Bendis of Kent University talking about the Federal Music Project. Now wake up, boys. Get out on the rock. It ain't daybreak, but it's four o'clock. Oh, no, 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 Pops. You know that ain't the play. What you talking about? It's the WPA. Oh, the WPA. Now, I said that. The WPA. Sleep while you work, while you rest, while you play. Lean on your shovel to pass the time away. Taint what you do, you can job for your pay. Where's that? So I guess to start, I have a kind of funny intro. I came across last night a survey taken by the Times in the UK that uh, recently asked people what they considered to be an essential job versus like an inessential job or a non-essential job. And uh, the top job, the top job cited was artists, with seventy-one percent of people really, yeah, responding. Um, so I mentioned this because even though it was taken in the UK, I feel like it in a way it can it sort of accurately displays the general public's sort of disposition towards the arts, particularly also politicians. Um, and I just wanted to frame our discussion with that in relation to now versus the time period that kind of led to the establishment of Federal Project Number One and the Federal Music Project. So I guess to start, can you maybe set the political and social scene for us in America at the time that led to the establishment of the Federal Project Number One and the Federal Music Project. I think it's honestly, I think it's less political than it is uh, really economic and social. Uh, the collapse uh, of the stock market and the collapse of the economy between twenty nine, thirty three, thirty four, and that time period 
led to a tremendous drain of patronage. And the difference between then and now is the, you know, the top 1% or the top 5% have retained most of their income. And so for a lot of musical venues that employed classical music, uh, like operas and symphonies and those types, they still have their patronage base. In the 1930s, that patronage base had dried up as people withdrew their money from symphony orchestras or from opera companies and even theaters uh, in that matter. So the economic reality of the 1930s made it uh, much more dire for musicians than today's market, interestingly enough, uh, because with the internet and a variety of other sources, musicians can still try to make a living. Uh, in 1930s America, without patronage for cultivated musicians, there was no marketplace. And for popular musicians, you know, they were not uh, they were not sought out by the Federal Music Project, so that's that's going to be a whole different episode uh, in your series about music in the '30s because uh, they weren't they weren't courted by Sokolov and the Federal Music Project. Um, as far as the uh, political context for the creation, uh, it really comes out of uh, out of FERA, the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, created in 1933, which allocated money to states, and states could use that money for projects to employ, uh, to employ unemployed people within their states in block grants. Uh, the problem with this was, of course, that for many states, particularly in the South, but not exclusively, uh, they didn't use any of the money to hire uh, African Americans, or women for that matter. It all went to a very small number of people. But in a number of places, they did create music projects for musicians uh, to perform for people in public parks and those type of things. And then when uh, in the winter of 1933-34, uh, they created an emergency program called the Civil Works Administration, or the CWA. And the CWA created a specific project for employing musicians uh, as a means by which to uh, create, uh, you know, a more positive attitude amongst people, create a, an atmosphere of hope, right? You know, so they can go listen to music and, and those type of things. And the success of that um, really encouraged Harry Hopkins, who's really the really the, the font of this idea of what was called work relief, where uh, FARA uh, provided states with grants. A lot of this was basic relief money, or what the English call the dole, right? Uh, or what we call in modern parlance, welfare. You couldn't make your rent, you couldn't uh, pay your bills, you couldn't get food, and so you'd sign up for FARA money through your local administrator and they would give you, you know, they'd give you the dole or they'd give you a check or a chit, and then you can go and do these things. Um, but for Hopkins, that, and Francis Perkins as well, that seemed to reinforce a sense of hopelessness. Uh, and so with the CWA and with the success of the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, what they came to realize was that people didn't want just money. Uh, they wanted to feel as though they were part of something, that they were creating something, that they were inclusive. And that's one of the things, uh, you know, that's part of the New Deal that I find interesting as a scholar was the inclusiveness of the New Deal, even as they were discriminatory towards blacks and Hispanics and women uh, within context of its time, uh, their idea was to try and draw these people in uh, to American society. And so what Hopkins learned with the CWA 
was that if you employ people in jobs that they were trained for, it provided not just economic aid so that they can pay their rent and get food, it provided a sense of hope. Uh, it provided a sense of, uh, of optimism that the future could be better than the present. And the 1930s is filled with cultural manifestations about the future. Uh, the future is going to be better. The future is going to be better, you know, leading all the way up to the 1939 World's Fair in New York City, you know, which was the world of tomorrow. Uh, but that was one of six World's Fairs that took place in America during the 1930s, all of which promised this better future uh, if we only could work together today. And so the Federal Music Project, or Federal Project One, which it was a part of with the Writers Project, the Theater Project, and the Art Project, you know, it was about creating a sense of hopefulness uh, amongst the population by employing musicians uh, to perform free or very low-cost uh, music for citizenry. And that's sort of the political and economic uh, foundation or context uh, for the creation of the Federal Music Project. I mean, I mean that, that's one of the things that really strikes me as being so fascinating about the Federal Music Project um, versus, I don't know, the NEA today, which is that it really is about employment, right? It's not uh, ostensibly at a federal level, the decision to fund the program is because musicians need jobs too. Yeah, um, but it had it had its severe limitations. You know, uh, first off, you know, uh, in order to qualify to get on the rolls, you had to, uh, the American Federation of Musicians, uh, you had to uh, be a member and apply for relief through the AFM. Uh, and that became problematic because a lot of musicians hadn't qualified for relief because they didn't qualify under FARA, so that deadline had to be extended. Uh, and then the director of the music project, Nikolai Sokolov, um, you know, he was very, very uh, adamant that this music project would not be for popular music. Uh, one of the things that he was convinced of more than anything else was that popular music, music was debasing American society and, you know, sort of melting the American mind. And so this project was going to be for cultivated musicians. And in order to get on, you had to pass an audition where you had to read music and you had to be able to play the charts. If you couldn't play the charts, you, the, your likelihood of you getting onto the FMP roles was very, very small. And so for popular musicians uh, or street musicians, uh, you know, or buskers or any of those, forget about it. They couldn't get a gig uh, on the Federal Music Project. And uh, so that became an issue of contention within the Federal Music Project and within the government itself. You know, what role does popular music have in all this? Interrupt me anytime, by the way, or I'll just keep talking. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, it, it might be useful kind of building on that to talk a little bit of, about kind of a very broad overview of what the working body of musicians was like in the U.S. at the time. Because my sense is that, um, you know, clearly, uh, you, I guess you had, you had started transitioning to talkies, there had been mechanically reproduced production, had started putting working orchestras out of business, but there was a huge number of working chart reading musicians at that time, right? Uh, studio musicians, you mean. Uh, there were a lot, but the industry was in free fall. 
uh, from 1930 to 1934 or so. The record industry, if you look at statistics, the number of records sold, um, I don't have them off the top of my head, but the industry as a whole was in rapid decline. Uh, the radio was uh, encouraging a renaissance of music, but of course radio wasn't allowed to play records. That wouldn't come until after World War 1944 or so, where they were allowed to play records on the air. So you had to have live musicians. And so that employed a lot of local live musicians, but you didn't get paid. Uh, you played on the radio much the same way. Uh, I don't know if you guys are musicians, but I was a musician for many years and still am. Uh, you know, oftentimes you play gigs with the hopes that, you know, you'll get another gig. So you like you'll appear on some local public radio station and they'll say, oh, come and play a song for us. And you'll play a song. You don't get paid, but you, you know, you hawk your gig, your next gig that you're playing. I'm going to be playing at this you know, hotel or I'm going to be playing at this bar next week. And you hope those people come and you make your money off live broadcasts. Um, and the same in the 30s. And so local musicians were able to play on the radio, but they didn't get paid uh, for it. And people didn't have money. And so when you had a gig... Exactly. And so they had, you know, so you did have the early beginnings of hillbilly music or country music, country western music. Someone like Gene Autry, for example, he was having no problem making lots of money as a musician and others were having no problem. Uh, you know, Duke Ellington was touring at the time uh, reasonably well, uh, you know, out in Kansas City. Uh, What's his face? Uh, the piano player whose name just uh, Count uh, Count Basie, Count Basie. Uh, was having no problem either. Uh, Andy Kirk, Tears of Joy, they were having no problem. Benny Goodman was on tour. You know, I mean, so there was some music developing, but it was at a very, very uh, foundational and fundamental level. Uh, and so most musicians were out of work. Most musicians weren't Benny Goodman or Artie Shaw or, uh, or Duke Ellington. They were, you know, Joe Blow in the street who, you know, played bars, who played nightclubs, who played, you know, on the radio, uh, you know, music in between different shows on the radio. Music was the uh, most frequently played thing on radio in the 1930s. Uh, like I can't remember the statistic between 50 and 60 percent of all programming was music because it was cheap. You didn't have to pay them. But, you know, if there were no gigs uh, after that, then these musicians were struggling to to maintain their art artistry while being unemployed. Uh, and so the context was, is there was lots of music out there. There just wasn't a lot of money that people had to pay for music. And so the Federal Music Project and this goes for classical musicians as well. Right. Patronage dried up and, you know, symphonies all across this country closed their doors in the 1930s. You can't, you know, I, uh, Cleveland Symphony canceled their season, most of their season this year because of Corona. Uh, but they didn't cancel it because they were didn't have enough money in the 1930s. Uh, you know, orchestras like the Cleveland Orchestra, which Sokoloff was director of until 33, uh, they couldn't field the musicians. They couldn't field an orchestra until the Federal Music Project came back in 1935. And then they were able to have a, a, an orchestra once again because patronage simply dried up, there wasn't money. So it was a really, it was very, very difficult for musicians, both popular as well as uh, cultivated musicians. So um, before we dive kind of more into the um, kind of the, the project itself and, and what it what it funded, um, I'd love to talk just a little bit more about kind of um, the broader legislative framework that allowed it to happen. Um, 
So my sense is this is a period in which it's not the first hundred days anymore, but the ability of the um, Roosevelt government to pass enormous pieces of legislation that throw around like significant chunks of the GDP um, is pretty uh, unrestrained. Like, was there, uh, was this kind of tucked into a huge bill? Was there a reaction to it? Was there opposition from people who felt that for one reason or another, the government shouldn't be funding culture? Yes and no. Uh, Roosevelt came into office and Roosevelt wasn't a believer in Keynesian economics uh, in that way. He didn't believe in priming the pump. He was relatively fiscally conservative. Um, but the emergency of the times uh, forced him to allocate monies, tremendous amounts of monies. And uh, uh, in, in the 100 days legislation that you mentioned, uh, what they learned is that you just can't throw money at things without really having an idea of where that money is going to go, how it's going to end up. And that's why FARA didn't work the way they wanted it, because you gave the money to states and then states did what they wanted with it, which didn't really advance the aims of the federal government which was this idea of try to spread it around as much as possible, particularly to those people who were on the lower ends of, of what's going on economically. Um, by 1935, as you know, uh, Roosevelt's keystone of the first New Deal, the NRA and the AAA and other programs came under tremendous attack and uh, NRA and AAA were ruled unconstitutional. So here's Roosevelt running for re-election. Now, in the 1934 election, the Democrats once again swept, you know, the Republicans out. And so the Democrats had an overwhelming majority in both the House and the Senate. So it was clear that whatever Roosevelt came to the table with in the spring of 35, there was a likelihood he was going to get, uh, as long as there was rationalization for it. Um, and Hopkins and, uh, and his allies, uh, Hopkins' allies, were very adept at creating and crafting legislation that, for want of a better word, distributed the pork evenly around the country. Uh, so for the WPA, for example, every county in America was to get at least one or two WPA projects. Every county. It didn't matter if your county had 15 people in it. You were going to get a, a new gymnasium or a swimming pool or a school or a library. And the idea was is that who could complain, right? In every county in the America, somebody was out of work. Somebody, a bricklayer, uh, an architect, a, a singer, a poet, somebody was out of work somewhere. And the federal government was going to employ them temporarily, right, below uh, the wages that you would get in the private sector, so they weren't competing with the private sector, and that money was going to be rolled right back into the local economy. So who's going to complain about it, right? And since the Democrats were in control of both the House and the Senate, and they, you know, Roosevelt wasn't going to veto it, right? Um, this was also a tremendous political ploy of patronage, right? Because if you're on a WPA. And that election is coming up in 1936. I mean, we look back historically and we realize Alf Landon is going to get smashed by Roosevelt in the 36th election, right? Um, but in 1935, it wasn't that clear. There were a lot of the newspapers, the major newspapers, Hearst, uh, McClatchy in Chicago, a variety of others, were very hostile to Roosevelt and the New Deal. 
Uh, there's a you know an excellent book by Wendy Wall that talks about how the business interests, you know, uh, uh, large manufacturers and other capitalists were you know terrified that Roosevelt was slowly taking the country down this socialist uh, or Soviet-like economy or even fascist-like economy, uh, you know, and so there was a lot of opposition to it. But the pro the problem for the opposition was is they had no real foundation to. Uh, really challenge Roosevelt because the economy still sucked, uh, people were still out of work, um, and nothing seemed to be solving the problem. And so with the Democrats in full control of the House and Senate, pretty much whatever Roosevelt, within reason, was able to legislate with reasonable and logical, and that's the key, very much part of this modernism of the 1930s, it was reasonable. If we pay people money and they build stuff for us, right, then that's good money spent, right? We're not just throwing it into a hole and hoping something good comes out of it. We're going to pay people to build roads. We're going to pay people to dig sewers. We're going to pay people to play music, right? Who's going to object to this, right? Uh, you know, uh, other musicians in town aren't going to object to it because that means now that people are listening to music. And so after a concert in the park, they might wander down the street to the local sandwich shop and there's a guy playing the saxophone uh, with his hat out. Maybe he's getting quarters. You see what I'm saying? So it, it, the idea was that this would drive changes within the economy, whether it's music or theater or art or, you know, making mattresses. Uh, you would think that people had mattresses, but they had a WPA project that made mattresses that could be distributed to people who didn't have mattresses, it, which again, in our context, it's hard for us to imagine in 2020 that people in the 1930s didn't have matches, uh, mattresses or shoes uh, to uh, eliminate ringworm in the American South, you know, just all sorts of these types of things. Who's going to object to that? Nobody. Yeah, actually, just a, like a personal antidote. My, my my grandma didn't have shoes until she was nine, and she grew up like really poor in like rural Texas, and like actually like picked yeah. cotton and everything. And that's like that was like her story of like why they went to California. I'm originally from California, you know. It was like, oh, the land of you know shoes. plenty, you know. <laughs> yeah, for shoes. Yeah, yeah for shoes. Exactly yeah, right. for shoes. Right. Exactly. They get shoes because you know in California everybody wears shoes. They're so rich out there, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, but it, you know that's, or at least sandals. That's how the, yeah, exactly. Sandals, exactly. Uh, but that's how the you know the Federal Music Project was part of that. The same way, you know, musicians in cities were out of work. Um, you could put on free shows uh, for people, like on a Saturday afternoon, because uh, people didn't have money, you know, to spend uh, on other entertainment activities and they can go to the park and set up their chairs like they do all across America before COVID, uh, you know, uh, you know, and go and enjoy a free concert in the park of symphony orchestra. And, you know, the idea behind it was, is that most people, most Americans were unable to go see the symphony because it was priced out of their abilities. And so what Sokoloff and the federal, you know, the, what is it? The American Federation of Music Teachers, which is one of the groups that were really pushing the idea of cultivated music with the Federal Music Project and the Federal Music Project itself, um, you know, their push was is that this would be an excellent opportunity to educate people on good music, on quality music, on, uh, on music that would uplift them as opposed to the more uh, bass music of popular, whether it be cowboy or Tin Pan Alley uh, or swing jazz music, uh, those type of things. 
this might be a, a good time to, to talk about Sokolov. So he's a really crucial figure in kind of the way all this pans out. So who was he? Where did he come from? And how did he get chosen for this extremely important position? Um, he was uh, uh, he came to the U.S. from Russia before the revolution, uh, 1911, 1910 or so. Um, and he was a child prodigy. Uh, and so by the time World War I ended, he was still in his, uh, still in his mid-20s, late 20s. Uh, and he was guest lecturer or guest uh, conductor in Cincinnati. And then Cleveland, which was organizing a symphony, I think it's 1926 or so, um, they hired him to come up and organize a symphony here up in Cleveland. And um, very quickly, um, he was recognized for his, uh, his abilities to be an excellent conductor and a, a evaluator of talent and was able to draw a really good uh, number of musicians to come to Cleveland to be part of the Cleveland Symphony. Uh, and he was here until 1933. And then he retired. He was in his early 40s when he retired. Uh, and he retired to Connecticut. And the way he got the gig is interesting. Is His wife was very good friends with the president, whose name I can't remember, of the American Federation of Music Teachers. And so when they were discussing who should head the Federal Music Project, the Music Teacher Association flooded uh, flooded Hallie Flanagan, or uh, no, uh, Ellen Woodward, who was the head of Federal Project One, flooded Ellen Woodward with, uh, with telegrams and letters saying that Sokolov should be the guy uh, because he's uniquely qualified to uh, enrich America with, uh, with cultivated music. And that's how he came to do it. And um, there was some opposition to him being there. Number one, because he wasn't uh, a Native American, uh, whatever that term might could mean uh, in 1930s America. But, uh, you know, there was a strong element of nativism within the Federal Music Project. You couldn't be in the Federal Music Project if you weren't an American. Uh, and so there were a number of, uh, of people who had emigrated to the United States and had not yet become citizens uh, who couldn't be on the Federal Music Project. They had to get a special dispensation. And so there was some resistance to Sokolov being the director because he wasn't considered a real American. Uh, particularly American composers uh, didn't like Sokolov because Sokolov really didn't think that American compositions uh, you know, uh, were up to the same standard uh, of European compositions. And so the Cleveland Orchestra, for example, rarely, if ever, played any American compositions while he was music director and conductor. So he was not very sympathetic to the American composer. And so the fear was is that Sokolov was going to take over the Federal Music Project and simply use it to perpetuate the uh, superiority of European music over American music. Well, that, 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 if I can just interject, like that, that's probably the most, one of the most interesting threads in your book was that you have this, you write a lot about you know, people saying how this project was to like bring about like an awakening in, new, in American music, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing. And yet you have this European leading it, and then you have right. them mainly, not exclusively as you as you can as you can expound upon, but mainly bringing a lot of like European compositions to these places. And yet they're still talking about like oh, awaking the music, you know, bringing about a new era in American music. And it's like I'm like I'm I was so perplexed by the sort of gap there because you know, in retrospect, when I think about American music, you know, I think about 
you know, like country or folk or blues or jazz. And yet, they, you know, Sokolov, you know, as you can explain more, was very like hands off. It was like, no, 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 not that. There's a famous, there's a great point in your book where he says something about swing music and he says, oh, I like going dancing as well. But like, you know, compares it like candy to like a steak or something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He called it cartoon music. Yeah, there you Uh, go. Cartoon music. Yeah. And yeah, it... The American Musical Awakening really does happen in the 1930s, uh, but the Federal Music Project tries to contribute to it, but there's so much resistance at the top end and from composers themselves, because many of the composer, many of not composers, conductors, I mean, many of the conductors that are put in charge um, are Russian, uh, Russian or uh, European immigrants who have come here and have become naturalized and they've become conductors of these federal music project uh, orchestras and they rely on European compositions. Uh, But in 1936, the federal music project began a mandate where these orchestras had to perform American compositions. Uh, They had to, they were under a direct a directive that they had to perform American compositions and furthermore, they had to encourage local communities to uh, to write compositions that they would play. So there was a, a, tre- a tremendous effort to encourage American composers. Um, and this is where you get in the problem of, well, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. Because while you can tell orchestras to play American compositions, the audiences who are relatively inexperienced with symphonic music or cultivated music, you know, they hear the strains of Beethoven, they hear the strains of, uh, of Hayden, they hear the strains of Brahms, and they recognize it instantaneously, and that draws the people in. And so a lot of the complaints that conductors had about, you know, using and pressuring their orchestras to play American music was that crowds didn't necessarily enjoy it. Uh, they didn't understand it. Uh, they didn't want to hear it. And and so you have this real tension between what the audience, what the perception of what the audience wanted and what the Federal Music Project was hoping would occur as a result. Well, before we get too much farther, maybe it'd be good to like define what we're talking about here when we talk about American music. Because like I said, like in retrospect, I'm thinking like folk music, blues, jazz, but that actually wasn't what was really being played no. most of the time. I'm talking about people like Aaron Copeland, for example. But, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, American composers of cultivated music. Or maybe like like, like Sousa. Um, no, Sousa, you know, no, no. He's a military march. You know, you would play that on Fourth of July or Memorial Day. Uh, those type of uh, things. That's a brass band. Um, I'm talking about symphonic music, uh, cultivated music that's, uh, that uh, requires uh, tremendous technical skill, uh, a variety of, uh, you know, Roger Thompson, for example. There's a variety of composers that have been working since the early part of the 20th century trying to develop American sound. Uh, Virgil Thompson is another one. Uh, whose musical scores for the river and the plow that broke the plains are, are very interesting, you know. You know, so there were a number uh, that played. Antonio Bricco, for example, uh, had her st- uh, material played out in San Francisco, and that was a big deal. Um, so there were a variety of American composers who were uh, sort of on the cutting edge. They had gone to Paris in the 
20s and they had studied under Nadia Bollinger, who was this famous teacher of, uh, of cultivated music. And they came back with the desire to, uh, to play. Uh, but they found that, uh, number one, the depression meant that uh, symphony orchestras weren't playing anyhow. And, and then when the Federal Music Project came in, they found themselves in a position where the Federal Music Project wasn't always enthusiastic about playing American compositions. But they did. Uh, but they did play them. And, uh, and, and, you know, with some success. Someone like Aaron Copeland, for example, would have long-term success not because of the Federal Music Project, but certainly it gave him exposure when he might not have had it otherwise. And they had composer forums in places like New York and San Francisco and L.A., Chicago, places where there were a large number of uh, people who had trained as composers uh, where they could then share their materials and create an American sound. And they did create an American sound, which blended a lot of spirituals, blended a lot of you know, popular music uh, type thing, uh, but with that uh, orchestral sound of you know uh, of of you know sixty eight instruments all playing something different at the same time, uh, which is amazing. And the same for women, for you know uh, women composers, uh, women musicians. One of the things the Federal Music Project did that's really revolutionary is they integrated bands sexually, uh, orchestras sexually. Uh, there were no women who played in orchestras in America before the 1930s. And really, in private orchestras, uh, very few women would be in orchestras in America, private orchestras in America, until the 1970s. Uh, but virtually every uh, orchestra of the Federal Music Project had at least one or several women who were part of it, uh, part of those uh, orchestras. So that's kind of revolutionary. Um, you know, again, their numbers were relatively slow, uh, small given the percentage of population, but in cultivated music in general, women were not allowed to have a place. There were certain instruments that women weren't allowed to play or were considered unfeminine to play. Anything that, you know, they had to blow, anything between their legs, those variety of instruments, you know, were considered uh, verboten. Uh, you know, women could play the violin. That was okay. So, I mean, um, for one, you know, like America, when I think of American music, there's clearly um, a still developing, like you said, kind of classical tradition. But there's also, I mean, this is an area I've done a lot of research on, but, you know, there's... Um, a huge commercial space in between, let's say, the blues or hillbilly music and classical music. I mean, Tin Pan Alley, even the more, you know, Victor Herbert, more kind of refined versions of that kind of popular theatrically based uh, musical production. And I'm just wondering, I guess, was there any interaction between that part of the industry and the project? Was there a pushback that these people who I assume were also out of work, the Broadway performers, weren't getting hired? There was pushback from a variety of sources, like Charles Seeger, for example, uh, really wanted the Federal Music Project to work more actively uh, to collect folk songs and blues songs and, and really employ uh, street musicians uh, for the purpose of uh, what he believed was populist music. Right. Um, and certainly Broadway musicians uh, also saw themselves as being left out of it, as did popular musicians and uh, studio musicians, all of these. But Sokolov was 
very keen with his allies uh, to make certain that those elements did not in, uh, infect the Federal Music Project. Because his fear was, and this came to be true with the theater, the writing, and the art project, the fear was that by incorporating popular music into the Federal Music Project, it would invite congressional scrutiny. And Congress would see that, and, and, the, and, and really here you have Joseph Weber, the president of the American Federation of Musicians, being very influential too, because Weber was very concerned that the Federal Music Project would create a situation that would weaken the union. And so he was very, uh, he wasn't very supportive of the Federal Music Project taking popular musicians and putting them on the project. He wasn't necessarily fighting against it, but he wasn't pushing for it as hard as he could have because he saw what would potentially uh, be beneficial for the musician, his musicians, the AFM musicians, uh, would be popular music, jazz swing bands, country bands, uh, you know, cowboy bands, Tin Pan Alley, Broadway, you know, all of these different musicians. These musicians would uh, benefit from the Federal Music Project because you're taking away competition of these cultivated musicians, leaving a wide opening for union guys to play. And that was kind of why there was that uh, that dichotomy. And so while popular musicians said, you know, we should be part of the project too, the swing boom and the real boom in commercial music, popular music, happens in 1935. So at the same time, the Federal Music Project is initiated in 35 and really comes into its own in 1936. By that time, popular music is also uh, rising very rapidly. And so, uh, you know, a huge number of, uh, of swing bands and jazz bands, a lot of, uh, you know, cowboy country bands out west, for example, out in Los Angeles, as well as in the Midwest in Chicago, the National Bard and Dance, uh, WSM out of, uh, out of uh, Atlanta, you know, the... Uh, uh, the uh, the Opry out of Nashville, you know, you're really seeing a, a real resurgence of American popular music beginning in 1936. And so for those musicians, they're not wanting to conform to what, you know, the Federal Music Project wants them to do, right? Uh, now, there are some instances where they do employ popular musicians, and those are places where there aren't any cultivated musicians. Uh, and so in some places of Texas, you know, they have uh, what they consider to be popular bands, which are, you know, Spanish orchestras, tipicas, right? Uh, and they don't consider them to be really great musicians because they can't read charts. So the thing was, if you couldn't read a chart, according to the Federal Music Project, you weren't a musician. You had to be able to read charts. Uh, and if you couldn't do it, and many popular musicians in swing bands, you know, the stories go on and on and on in swing bands, the white and black performers, they didn't read charts, you know, they just, you know, had markings where they were to come in and, and go out and they followed, you know, and, uh, you know, sight reading was not something that most swing bands did. So um, my sense is actually uh, in, in some of the literature on this, that the, some of those bands, especially the Tipicos were actually some of the most popular um, in terms of uh, success of outreach um number of audience members, uh, projects that the uh, the project funded, right? Yeah, cowboy bands too. Out in Arizona and New Me in New Mexico, they had cowboy bands. Uh, and uh, in California, they had Filipino bands, uh, but they weren't Filipinos. Uh, 
they uh, they called it uh, they called it Hawaiian music, and that's where you get the twangy guitar from. Country music, by the way, is from these uh, from these Hawaiian or Filipino bands out in California in the 1930s. Um, but uh, yeah, they were very popular, and that was that was a fear as well <laughs> that they were very popular because there were private sector opportunities for them because they would work for lower wages. Again, remember that the Federal Music Project was part of the WPA. And the idea of the WPA was to allow people to maintain their skills that they had in the private sector so that when the economy opened up, they would be able to go right back into the private economy in the same place that they had come out of with the depression. So for the Federal Music Project, the idea was is to allow these cultivated musicians to maintain their high standards, right? So they were being paid in essence to practice for audiences when, so that when the economy got better again and patronage returned to Cleveland or Los Angeles or you know, Detroit or Akron or Chattanooga, wherever these orchestras were, that those orchestras would have, boom, right at their disposable, disposal, rather, uh, musicians who could step right into that symphony orchestra, right? And so the Federal Music Project does serve as sort of a, a safety net for cultivated musicians so that when the economy opens up again, these cities will have privately sponsored uh, orchestras whose members came out of the Federal Music Project, right? And that was the idea of the WPA. So the idea of the WPA wasn't just to hire anybody to do anything. It was, you know, I'm going to hire out-of-work architects to help build these post offices. You know, and so that they're honing their skills so that in the nine months that they're on the WPA, they can then go into the private sector and get a job as an architect saying, over the last nine months, I've been in WPA and I designed three post offices. Here they are. And the same with the Federal Music Project, right? I was in the, you know, the Buffalo Federal Music Project from 1935 to 1937. And then the Buffalo local population began to support the orchestra. And so now I have a seat, you know, I'm the third, I'm the third violinist because I was the third violinist in the uh, Federal Music Project band too. You see the idea? So it really wasn't about supporting these popular musicians because popular musicians would always have a place. You could stand on a corner and play and get quarters, right? Uh, these were for cultivated musicians to maintain their high skills. So kind of building on that, kind of we've been talking about it from a top down. I'm wondering if you could talk about it a little bit from, a, from more of a bottom up perspective. So you have these musicians who had been in cultivated orchestras mostly, you know, traveling through a fairly limited circuit of performance venues and settings. And then all of a sudden, for nine months, a year, longer, they're playing high school gymnasium. They're playing everywhere, right? I mean, do you have a sense of how this affected the musical life of the performers? Um, yes and no. Uh, there aren't any oral histories of individual musicians that I've ever seen. Um, but in reading newspaper reports and stories that came out of the publicity office, which, you know, you, you know we'll see how true those are. Um, but what they said is uh, generally the musicians were thankful they had a job and they didn't have to go dig ditches. You know, uh, you know, so the idea was, OK, I have to go play a parking lot opening uh, in uh, in Detroit and I'm not excited about it. Um, but at the same time, my options are. 
to do this or to go dig a ditch uh, and get paid money on that. And that was sort of the idea, you know, the drive. Also, you know, the Federal Art Project, you know, the, these the people like Jackson Pollock on the Federal Art Project, you know, having to go paint a post office mural, not in the style of his artistic design, but, you know, has to conform to what they said to do. Yeah, but on the other hand, that gave him enough money to buy paints so that he could practice what he really wanted to do, right? Uh, and the same with Ralph Allison and a variety of other people in the writing project. So most of the artists who were employed in Federal Project One saw it as a stopgap measure to maintain their abilities so that when the economy, if, well, they assumed it would, when the economy rebounded, they would uh, not have spent six years not playing their violin, not writing, not painting, not doing sculpture, not acting, you know, all these things. And so, you know, they, when you got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Great line by Bob Dylan, but it, it works in different eras, uh, you know, and, uh, and that's the way they felt about it. And, and kind of going back off of that experience and, and also off of something that Saxon had said earlier, um, also for these musicians, um, thinking about um, Aaron Copeland, for example, uh, who are both doing refined, you know, high level classical music, but also necessarily um, a quote unquote American music and trying to reach a broad audience. Um, you write a little bit about, uh, especially in the conclusion, about how a very specific vision of Americanness and American music um, comes out of this project. Yeah, um, it's it's a very populist vision that comes out. Uh, and by populist, I mean it's it's an idea of inclusion. Um, and so while the Federal Music Project is able to escape radicalization at the theater project and art project, you know, so they're not even going to be attacked by Congress. Um, at the same time, what they were doing was potentially radical, um, potentially, um, because what they were saying was that American music had distinct characteristics that separated it from European music. And that if Americans recognize this distinctiveness in their music, they recognize it as, you know, like Warren Sussman says in his book uh, about American culture in the 1930s, they recognize this sense of Americanness and American pride without it becoming nationalistic. So it's not necessarily the same type of, uh, of artistic worship of the Germans toward Wagner, for example, right? But the idea was that by recognizing that Americans have a voice, whether it be in theater or in music, that is unique to our experience, that's reflective of the variety of resources and cultural attributes that contribute to American music or American theater or American literature, then out of this we'll build a sense of hope that democracy can survive. And so that's where it's potentially radical. It's very populist. You know, Aaron Copeland and other composers, and like Mark Blitzstein, for example, were writing music in the 1920s that was very, you know, dissonant, right? It was very, you know, it, it wasn't designed necessarily for you to enjoy. Uh, you know, they were experimenting with different scales, chromatic scales, and different ways in which to approach their craft. And while that was fun and cool, art for art's sake, by the 1930s, the social, the social idea of being a musician, a composer, uh, was that you were trying to create a music that spoke to your audience, right, rather than spoke at them. 
And so that's the, uh, the potentially radical nature of the Federal Music Project. They really encouraged composers to write things that spoke at the audience. Now, most of what was written for the Federal Music Project doesn't stand the test of time. It wasn't very good. But at the same time, they were encouraging people to recognize their Americanness, to recognize the unique nature of American music and stop relying on a European definition for quality, which happened in literature in America, you know, in the 19th century. But in music, cultivated music, it was just emerging at this time period. I mean, one of the things, though, um, that leads me to a question is, is to what extent some of these products fall into, you know, what is considered one of the great failings of the New Deal more generally, the ways in which by kind of working through, you know, native born American ideas and structures, it perpetuated and replicated real inequalities and prejudices, um, whether that's uh, farm workers not having access to beginnings of the welfare state or, um, you know, certainly I'm thinking about uh, how minstrel show music was understood in America as like a wellspring of American music in this period of time. Um, I'm just wondering how, uh, like, A, how uh, black musicians and black music were incorporated into this federal music project and, and how, um, whether it did some of those similar things and replicated some of those injustices. The uh, federal music project, uh, you know, worked to incorporate African-Americans uh, within the context of their time. You know, and uh, when the CCC was created by 1935, less than 6% of CCC were African-Americans, even though the unemployment rate for African-American young people was, you know, between the ages of 18 and 24 was, you know, 50 to 60%, right? Um, but in 1935, as part of the WPA, uh, Hopkins was able to get Roosevelt's support to mandate that on the projects, they had to achieve... Uh, racial statistical equality. So for the Federal Music Project, that meant 12% of the people who were hired nationally were African-American. Uh, that sounds really good, but it's not because they were in segregated bands. Uh, they were in segregated bands and only on maybe a couple of occasions were they even led by an African-American conductor. So generally, it was a white conductor conducting an all-black band. Um, one of the problems was that there weren't a lot of cultivated African-American musicians who can read the sophisticated charts. So outside of New York or outside of Chicago or outside of Boston, you know, areas where there was a large congregation of African-American uh, uh, cultivated musicians, it was difficult for a place, you know, like Akron to have black musicians play. Now, black musicians uh, were in many ways in a lot of the popular bands at the time, but the Federal Music Project wasn't for them. So there were a, a number of all-black orchestras throughout the country uh, that, you know, uh, from coast to coast, and they would play the same music that the white orchestras would. And occasionally they would have uh, festivals where they would play just black compositions, like Nathaniel Dett's work, uh, or William Grant Still's work. Uh, so, and white orchestras too uh, would at times play African-American compositions. So there was some of that. As far as American composers and what American composers were utilizing of African-American uh, music, they would 
usually weave in things that, you know, that they had been talking about since the early part uh, of the 20th century, uh, spirituals, uh, blues sounds, those type of things, uh, those sounds and uh, that the American audience could recognize uh, as American. Uh, so, so that's pretty much how they operated. Um, the Federal Music Project was not, you know, uh, uh, was not an open arms for people of color. Uh, you know, uh, they had to struggle to get on. In fact, there are numerous occasions where African American uh, uh, musicians uh, couldn't quite read the charts, but they needed more musicians in order to have a band uh, in order to get a whole cultivated group together. And so, you know, they had to write a letter uh, to the regional director to make sure that this musician could get on, you know, and, and those type of things. So it was an uphill battle for African-Americans in the Federal Music Project. In the whole New Deal, uh, it was an uphill battle. You know, uh, the idea of inclusion theoretically was a great one. Uh, in reality, uh, Roosevelt's record regarding African-Americans is uh, spotty at best. Uh, you know, and, and the Federal Music Project's no different uh, than the other uh, New Deal projects. Yeah. No, no, no. That makes sense. I mean, that 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 certainly fits my understanding of kind of the broader structures. So I guess, um, so it runs. It starts in thirty five, um, and it runs till thirty nine in one form, and then forty three in a slightly changed one. Right? Yeah. What happens in thirty nine is Congress cuts funding for Federal Project One, um, and so for things like the Theater Project, the Art Project. Uh, and uh, in the writing project, they're pretty much phased out entirely. The music project, because it was able to escape uh, the criticism that they were harboring communists, uh, you know, they were allowed to be transferred back to the states. And so it sort of returned back to the FERA way, F-E-R-A way, back in 1933 to 35, where the federal government, the federal music project, uh, you know, under Moore, uh, was the guy who directed it, they would give block grants, you know, help support, but the primary funding for the musicians and for the projects came from the states or from localities. And so this this began to occur within the WPA earlier, uh, and the music project was part of that as well. Uh, you know, by 1936, 1937, Roosevelt was under a lot of pressure to shift some of the burden of expenditures to localities who had federal that, that had WPA projects like the music project. So this just increased and so that by 1939 it was clear that the shift had taken place and that the bulk of uh, monies would come from localities and from states. And so only those states that continued to support that in a local way uh, maintained. And you know places like New Orleans still maintained it and and uh, so it worked. So but it didn't have the federal direction. So without the federal direction, a lot of the idea of, you know, employing X number of African-Americans, utilizing women, comp women composers, uh, you know, a lot of the mandates that the federal government could do to control where the money was going was lost. And so these state and local orchestras sort of ran on their own. And, and can you talk a little bit more about the congressional assault on uh, Federal Project One? Because that also seems like, a, um, in some ways, it sets the story for some of the, the culture wars around arts funding that dog, uh, certainly like the NEA from its founding. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in that too, because I'm curious how much, I mean, obviously, if 
taking into consideration the time and context why you know uh, there was maybe only so much they could do with say everything from folk to like African American music and musicians. But I'm curious how much of that was also kind of wrapped up in this like very tenuous like political climate. Yeah, the, one of the reasons why they didn't go with Charles Seeger's idea of creating a, a greater folk collection or even employing folk musicians or collecting blues songs is they, you know, Sokoloff and his advisors were convinced that this would this would open up the door for congressional investigation that they were, you know, uh, that they were helping, <laughs> you know, the, it's a strange phenomena that the idea of helping the people is considered uh, communist, right? Uh, but uh, that's sort of the idea. If we're going to distribute money to, to, you know, to collect blues songs that talked about exploitation, that talked about the difficult time of being black in America, and folk songs that talked about the problems, you know, Woody Guthrie's uh, ballads and stuff like that, you know, that's going to open us up to scrutiny by Congress. Um, HUAC, uh, the House on American Activities Committee, which was responsible for uh, attacking uh, Federal Project One, uh, was really driven uh, in 1936. Uh, Roosevelt's reelected, right? Um, but his uh, he's getting more and more resistance from his own party, particularly in the South, um, from Southern Democrats who see him. You know, even though Roosevelt's record on African American rights is is relatively spotty, uh, the New Deal by this point is really beginning to uh, to challenge some local uh, local habits of segregation and Jim Crow. Right? Uh, they're not denying it; they're not eliminating it. Uh, but the, you know, Green, uh, you pay somebody money, it changes the context of how. Uh, you know, your society operates. And so he was losing some support and Republicans were gaining back some support uh, as a result of some of the, uh, in the election. So in 1936, while he wins the re-election, his support in Congress isn't as strong. Uh, it begins to weaken. And it's in this context then that HUAC, uh, which had been created earlier in the 1930s to investigate uh, fascists, the rise of brown shirts and the rise of uh, pro-Hitler folks, well, that wasn't going anywhere. Um, you know, <laughs> and this is a context for today. Uh, it didn't seem that that was a big deal. Uh, you know, so what if there's a, a bund uh, on the uh, western part of Cleveland? There was a huge uh, bund here in, in uh, western part of Cleveland during the 1930s. They had a summer camp and everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's not a problem. Uh, but you know, communist infiltration of the WPA was a problem. Uh, and so, you know, it really came out of New York City and New York Times, a number of letters written to the New York Times talking about the infiltration of communists uh, in the Writers Guild, for example, uh, you know, in New York City and in a variety of other occupations. Workers would go on strike, you know, they were digging ditches or digging uh, sewer lines in the WPA, you know, and they were trying to unionize. Again, in the context, this is also during a very, very uh, violent period in American uh, union organizing, right? The CIO is created in 1935, and they begin a rapid succession uh, of organizing activities in the automobile industry, the steel industry, the rubber industry, and you have sit-down strikes, you have violent strikes, Memorial Day Massacre in 37. I mean, you go on and on and on. Uh, this is a very contentious time period, and WPA workers... Remember, they're unemployed workers for the most part, right? Not necessarily the musicians, but the rest of these 
folks are, are workers, working class folk, right? And they're unemployed and they're witnessing their brothers and sisters going on strike, advocating for better wages, better practices. And they're working for the WPA where they have none of these, pra- none of these uh, protections, right? And so there's a lot of activism in the WPA, interestingly enough, towards this that's going on. Congress wants to make sure that these uh, pro-communists that they call them or pro-labor infiltrators in the WPA are rooted out. Uh, And they start looking at the top and they work their way down. So someone like Hallie Flanagan uh, in uh, Federal uh, Project One, uh, you know, she's under attack for her communist or leftist sympathizers and everything else. Um, And they begin attacking Federal Project One, particularly the theater and writing project, uh, because it's the most obvious. You have printed material <laughs> right before you, right? So you could see the, you know, the narration of the script. You can see what this has been written in the guides. And then they turn their attention to the art projects, and they begin to look at the art projects and compare it to Diego Rivera and, you know, the Mexican more revolutionary muralists of the time. And they begin picking out, oh, these are all pro-worker murals that we're putting in post offices and airports. There's something wrong with this. And in fact, most of these murals will be painted over or destroyed after World War II. uh, And very few of those murals remain um, because they they were considered radical for their time period. And again, they were easy to pick on, right? It's hard to pick on Joe Blow digging, you know, trenches uh, for sanitation for being a a communist because there's no evidence. But if I write a play, uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book is a play that the Federal Theater put on called The Revolt of the Beavers. Uh, It's one of my favorites uh, because it's a classic children's story. And it was something that the Federal Theater Project put on for New York City children. Uh, kindergarten and elementary school children. It was a story of a beaver colony and how they worked together. And then one of the beavers, Boss Beaver, you know, accumulated and wanted to, you know, hold back all the wood. And so all the other beavers were like, oh, we don't have any wood. And they revolted and, you know, they got all the wood and reduced Boss Beaver so that he was no longer in control. Oh, for the federal, uh, for the HUAC, this was clear communist propaganda. You know, even though, you know, school-age children aren't going to say, oh, yes, brother, that's what Marx, <laughs> that's what Marx was talking about, uh, you know. But yeah, I, I can't, it, I can't it, wait for, I can't wait for the, the, the senator uh, or, or house representative to come out with something about how we shouldn't have any more economic, economic stimulus because it was found out that, you know, Antifa was using the money to like go rent a bus to go to a march or something. You watch, you watch. Um, you know, I'm surprised it hasn't come out, quite frankly. I'm, I'm surprised that uh, they haven't begun attacking, you know, where that money, well, because most of the money has gone, <laughs> not necessarily to the people right. who might be part of that. It's gone right, to the people right. up in the top, and they're not letting us know where that goes, right? Uh, so they're, they're not telling us uh, where the money has gone. So we don't know where the money has gone. One thing that I learned a lot um, from reading your book um, that really did make, today make more sense is that um you know talking about federal funding for the arts i mean what we have now for huge swaths of the american population is basically a a a soft universal basic income um that unemployment uh and federally boosted unemployment is very high and i know a lot of artists i know are just sort of continuing to do their art whatever that is 
and taking that money and that's enough to support them. And in, in a way similar that my sense is that Federal Project 1 was a line item in the in the uh, Works Project Progress Administration. Um, and it was not an individual bill passed on its own. Similarly, all the artists in America who were not making that much money and are now currently getting unemployment are part of this huge bailout, um, which unfortunately is going to end. And so that's its own huge, terrible, terrifying kettle of fish. But it, it does seem that this is the kind of strategy where you can get arts funding in the United States is when you don't call it arts funding. Right, exactly. Uh, and that's, you know, the WPA, the funding for the WPA was so ambiguous. Uh, and the projects that were created were really created after the funding had come through. So even like the federal music or federal project one wasn't initially listed in the emergency work relief act that was passed in 35. Now later, you know, Congress began saying, wait a minute, you have all these acts. We want to see exactly where the money's going to go to. Uh, but initially, you know, he just Hopkins, you know, he's sort of the genius of this all Hopkins said, let's just get the money and then we'll figure out where we're going to put it all. And that's one of the amazing things about the Federal Music Project and, and the New Deal in and of itself is how fast, how rapidly they were able to ramp up these projects to go from zero to 60. Uh, you know, so from March, getting Congress to approve it in 35 to July of 1935, already having orchestras performing and paying people. I mean, just the speed at which these things operated uh, is astounding and is unique politically to that time period and, and couldn't happen now. So a big gigantic omnibus bill uh, that distributed aid uh, to unemployed people uh, that some czar or some head uh, would distribute uh, would take just take months for uh, even a year for them to implement it, to begin to water it down to where it needs to go down to the base level. So I'm curious, just in your opinion, both on a cultural level and then also the political, uh, the, the stated political, I guess not political, I guess the stated cultural intention and the stated social intention of this program, like how do you, how successful versus like, do, do you feel that it was? Because just in my own opinion, as far as like the, the driving to this like American awakening of music, you right. know, I, I, I'm doubtful. <laughs> it feels like what lasted <laughs> was like blues and jazz and folk, which they, you know, stayed away from. But, you know, just, I mean, obviously like, I, I love, you know, what's your opinion? And then also in the more political realm of like actually providing jobs, like, you know, did um, you feel like it was a success? Yeah, uh, it was a qualified success. The New Deal in and of itself, whether it's Federal Music Project or any of the New Deal, was a qualified success. Even Social Security was a qualified success. It would take amendment after amendment and bill after bill in the future to make it an actual uh, working policy that we all uh, want to protect today. Um, but the Federal Music Project was a qualified success. It did what it was set out to do, which was it took classically trained musicians and gave them a job uh, so that they were able to maintain their skills so that they were, could be employed in the private sector afterward. The secondary part of the Federal Music Project was to provide free or low-cost entertainment to the masses. And the Federal Music Project performed for, I don't know the number, I have it in the book, 44 million people. I mean, just astounding numbers of people that they would play in parking lots and in city parks. They go to old age homes. They'd go anywhere and everywhere that anybody would invite them to play. So they did provide a public service. 
Did they cause a transformation of the American mind concerning uh, cultivated music and American composers? No. Did they introduce Americans to a variety of music they might not have been exposed to? Yes. Uh, did that mean that they suddenly started to choose to listen to cultivated music instead of popular music? No. Uh, you know what I mean? So you can go back and forth, back and forth. But in terms of its aims, it did what it was supposed to do. And it was part of a, a musical cultural renaissance that took place in America between 1934 and 1941, and even into World War II, um, where a whole variety of different musics and different cultures came to be re represented within American society for the first time, for the first time, whether it be Joe Lewis as a boxer uh, or Joe DiMaggio as a baseball player or, you know, uh, Benny Goodman as a band leader. So, you know, a Jew, an Italian and a black guy. You know, when was that going to happen before then? Afterwards, of course, that becomes more normalized. But in the 1930s, you know, Benny Goodman's the first person to integrate a popular band. You know, this is before Jackie Robinson uh, integrates baseball. You know, uh, uh, Benny Goodman integrates with Teddy Wilson. He integrates his swing band in 1937. You know, uh, that that's sort of reflective of what the Federal Music Project was about. Not itself, but part of a musical and cultural renaissance that was taking place within the context of this horrible economic crisis. So creativity comes out of chaos. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know how else to say it. it, it, it and that's why I studied it, because um, it just... Uh, I grew up in Youngstown uh, in here in, in Ohio. And when I graduated high school, all the steel mills closed. And unemployment in my town was 25, 30%, you know. And so that led to a certain level of lawlessness <laughs> in, in the community uh, because, you know, police weren't getting paid. Nobody was getting paid. You know, there were no jobs. Um, and so when I, you know, I was working at a factory at the time. Uh, and, you know, when I quit the factory to go to school and then graduate school, I wanted to study the 1930s because I didn't, I couldn't quite understand how during this decade when, everybody was hurting, that they weren't killing each other off more often. What was going on that, you know, that, uh, that encouraged them to, to sort of get along? And I think part of it is this cultural renaissance that's taking place. Like you said earlier in, in our conversation, you know, you have this technological stuff that's taking place rapidly, like television would have occurred before the 1950s, if not for World War II. I mean, you have this technological revolution going on, while at the same time, the economy is in the toilet. Uh, and that's just the interesting part of the 1930s. So even as everybody is fighting for survival, there's an element of there's an element that they're all in the same boat together that makes any sense and i think that in the 1930s that happens for the first time in america in the 1930s outside of a war you know in a war it's easy because you're either for us or we shoot you uh, you know but this wasn't a war this was this was an economic crisis a social crisis a political crisis an ideological crisis um, and the people pulled together to a certain extent, you know, um, which which never happened before. 
you know, there's a Maya Angelou uh, in I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. You know, she talks about how in Stamps, Arkansas, when she was growing up during the Great Depression, uh, they didn't know there was a depression uh, because, you know, when the white people came down to their level economically, uh, they just saw that as white people coming down to their level. They had always been in a depression. So this was just an, a leveling out, so to speak. Right. And I think that's part of that renaissance that's going on there. Everybody saw uh, their existences right at the same level. And because of that, tried to re-identify what it meant to be part of this country at that time. And I know that sounds hokey, like a Homer or something like that. And I don't mean to sound that way, but it is a unique experience in the 1930s that outside of a war doesn't often happen or an outside threat like communism, you know, like in the Red Scare in the 1950s and stuff like that. So that's yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a great answer because I think also, you know, we have to take into consideration that like, I mean, it hadn't been that long since the country had had a civil war, you know, and so it right. was like, you know, and so there was, I understand, I kind of, you know, while at first my modern proclivities when I'm reading, I'm like, all this like talk about like Americanism and unity and it feels very like weirdly patriotic and nationalist, but like, you know, in the, when you start thinking about it in the context and the history of the time, it starts to make a lot more sense and like, yeah, that's that a really good answer. That's really good. And also just one more thing. Also remember that in the 1930s, uh, you're having, this is the, uh, this will be the first generation of American-born immigrants. So the great immigration surge from 1880 to 1914 brings over all these Southern and Eastern Europeans, Catholics and Jews, right? Others, you know, uh, you know they're white, uh, but their whiteness hasn't yet been clearly defined. But by the 1930s, their children are the ones who are sort of the, at that high school age and early college age, which they didn't go to, but they were the, the new Americans that were part of it. And so they were living in neighborhoods, you know, where there were blacks and there were Hispanics and there were Poles and there were Irish and there, you know, and suddenly they were living in a different world than their parents were. And they spoke English rather than Polish. You know, Lizbeth Cohen's book on making a new deal in Chicago, excellent source. Uh, that really explains how this is taking place in Chicago and shows the differences between late 1920 Chicago and mid 1930s uh, Chicago, or even uh, you know the Lynn's Middletown series, looking at the 1920s Middletown and then Middletown revisited uh, ten years later. You see a whole different context that's taken place over those ten years. Yeah, no, um, and a set of shared cultural experience. I mean, movies and the commercial rise of mass commercial entertainment, which created a, a exactly right, us. exactly right. Uh, the way they comb their hair, the movie stars they loved, you know, the uh, you know the way they uh, listen to the radio. Uh, music, all these things become, uh, and again, Cohen's book is really good on this, on, on, on records particularly, or grocery stores, where you get your food from, you know, the standardization of, of automobiles and, all, you know, all these things that go along the same lines uh, in the 1930s. Well, I really appreciate uh, all the time that you've spent with us. This has been really great. Thank you so much. Well, this was fun. Uh, anytime. I thought that was really interesting. Um, so 
I do think that for a number of reasons, and I thought Professor Bindes really got at that in a, in a cool way, that for, there's a number of different things that are happening in the 30s. In a weird way, it can feel like an overdetermined period because there's just this like, first of all, I think in people's imaginations, it's almost like a missing decade of American life because it's just like the depression and that's it. Um, and like people know have imagination of like, what do people look like in the 20s? And you can kind of imagine it. What do people look like in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s? And they can imagine it. What do people look like in the 30s? No idea. Bread lines, but like not what no one knows. And and I think that there's a couple of things. One is that like the depression kind of shakes the whole tank of American life. And then things are settling out. But at the same time, there, there's really intense changes, right? So I think when he's talking about... Uh, the ways in which you do get new kinds of national identity, both because of this remarkable shared experience. Um, and the way I like to think about that experience is not just kind of what he said um, about Maya Angelou and the fact that uh, in these uh, black communities, it was like, we didn't realize there was a depression for like three years. We always had really high unemployment. And then we noticed like similar things happening in white communities. One of the things that, that really marks the Great Depression is that the people who lose the most money are the middle and upper classes. Now, this is not to say like their lives are easier because a massive economic slowdown impacts the poorest members of the community the worst always. But like the famous thing about the bank runs, right? That's a famous part of the Great Depression is that the banks didn't, there wasn't FDIC yet. There wasn't insurance for these banks. And so these banks had runs on them. And they closed. And then people who had money that they had earned and put in the bank lost all their money. Um, disappeared. Gone. To do that, you had to have money in the bank. And just like now, where most Americans are like $300 away from empty, to lose your life savings, you need to have life savings. So it impacted middle and upper class people. And the stock market, similarly. Who's invested in the stock market? Rich people. And in, in the Great Depression, it expanded out into the middle class because people were doing all kinds of kind of shady financial dealings. But like uh, sharecroppers weren't invested in the stock market. The massive depression hurt them. But some of the particularly intense parts in terms of like how much money you lost <laughs> did impact people who already had money in a very peculiar way. Clearly, they recovered faster. This is not like Crimea River stockbrokers but there is a thing where like there is this kind of leveling move because of that and, and then also i thought like the the these new kinds of mass culture these new kinds of um the the, the change in immigration i think one thing he he that's very complicated about this is that immigration stops to america because of the kkk in the 20s <laughs> there's a massive resurgence of the kkk and they basically managed to rewrite the immigration laws so that what had been a flood of recent immigrants closes off, which means you get this new generation of American-born, first-generation immigrants and no new immigrants to replace them, which is what had been happening kind of since like the immigration spigots opened in the 1880s. Um, and that also led to like a new level of potential cultural homogeneity right right yeah i mean there's a lot of things that maybe we can like slow down and just like parse it out you know i think that first of all you know what you originally said in relation to the current time period i think you know obviously i'm hesitant to like make like direct comparisons from one period of history to the next but there is something to the fact that 
if we've looked at the stock market over the last couple of weeks, it's been kind of like chugging along kind of okay. Um, I think it I think it tanked again yesterday. But I mean, this idea that looking towards the stock market is a reflection of like how well the economy is doing. I think one of the many realizations for people who are paying attention to the news and what's going on in America for the last like four or five months, one of the realizations is that actually maybe the stock market doesn't reflect anything about the masses of Americans here and actually just reflects how the uh, money of rich people is doing and how they're doing. The stock doing. market is not the economy, as Kai Rizdahl It's Rizdal not the economy, says. right. Yeah, there you go. Shouts Thank to you. Kai. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, And so I think that there is sort of like an interesting parallel there with like the current time period. And I think that you know, I step into this lightly, and I think there's still a lot to wait to be seen, but there is sort of like, if nobody has a job, and everybody's, you know, scraping by, and nobody has any, and everybody has a lot of time on their hands, you know, and now we're all out in the street, there is a sort of like leveling out and coming together that maybe you also see, which has like been driven by the fact that like none of nobody's making money, nobody has a job to go to. So that's why we're able to protest Monday through Friday because of the fact that nobody has to go to their job. Um, I, I so mean, and there's the shared, sort of similarities and the shared experience of the coronavirus crisis, right? I think that 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 was what really struck me hearing him talk about the potential for new definitions of American identity because of these shared experiences. It's like, I mean, it's a much more polarized country today than it is then polarized politically polarized in, in all kinds of ways but huge swath certainly I, I think you could draw a direct line um between the kind of shared experience of being locked down if you, you can be or the the, the the massive changes in everyday social interaction and the sense that other changes could happen right that protesting the idea that you could like change the world by abolishing the police it's like Everyone just went inside for like two months. So we just saw something absolutely that was was unthinkable happen. So more unthinkable things could happen and you could start thinking them. Yeah. And I mean, I think to sort of not to stray too far from the topic of this episode, but I think you could also say that we kind of all did our civic duty, put on masks, went inside expecting our civic and political and other types of leaders to lead the way not only in maybe providing us some sort of relief but then in like helping the people that are sick and then like you know giving us you know clear directives of when it was safe to go outside and I think it's fair to say and obviously there's a lot of arguments to be made about this depending you know on your opinion but I think it's fair to say that it's been bungled quite a bit and so not only have we kind of like maybe there's been a sort of well, maybe there's been sort of an, I say, well, I say this because maybe there's been sort of also an awakening that maybe people are all realizing that we're kind of like a lot more on our own here. And maybe if we come together, maybe we have a little bit more power than we really thought and realized. Um, and that's kind of like this like collective sort of experience that I think we're in the middle of. And I'm still, like I said, I, as I, as before I said that I tread lightly into it cause I don't know where it'll go. And there's still like a lot of divisions within divisions within divisions, just get on Twitter and you'll see that. But you know, there is sort of this interesting similarity where we're going through this sort of unthinkable period, as you mentioned, 
and then we're going through another unthinkable period like you know the shock of like violent clashes with the police yeah there's always like various like one-on-one skirmishes that go on in the city but on such a mass like scale plus like the protest that yeah there are these interesting sort of like collective shared experiences where when we come together while we're fighting racial inequality or police brutality or whatever maybe uh that you know what we're what we're raging against um there is a sort of leveling out in that moment at that time where we kind of come together and collectively push against, you know, cops or whatever it is. I mean, the one thing that's tricky, I mean, to kind of bring this back, there's fireworks in the background. Uh, <laughs> there you go. One thing to... to it's, either, it's either fireworks or, like, helicopters, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> isn't that true? I mean, the one thing, though, is, like... I, I, I mean, thinking about... So I did a little bit of numbers research, and I'm not going to quote the direct numbers um, because, A, I mean, I am not a financial analyst, and so I don't want to get them wrong, but it's something in the neighborhood of $15-18 billion are paid out to people, artists and artist managers, like people directly related to the production of music every year and another 15 to 20 billion dollars are paid out to like ancillary benefits which my understanding is like that's the pe- the, the person who works coat check at the venue that's the restaurant next to the venue that's not being crowded every saturday night that's the you know all the 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 broader economic impacts is the indirect payments that's like in wages right that's not like economic activity that some people are that's wages paid out and i mean this look at learning about the 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 wpa more generally and, and the federal music project more specifically is like yeah this is the kind of activity not just at the scale but for the duration necessary to enable a relatively smooth transition from this period of absolute economic devastation back into something resembling normalcy. I mean, that was World War II, so like with a grain of salt. But there is, right, like similar to the coronavirus now, what happens uh, to the American economy, I mean, starts in one place, which Wall Street and the the financial like origins are like complicated we're not even going to get into that because no one you know almost a hundred years later no one agrees (laughs) on exactly on on what caused on what what caused the great depression exactly um but clearly it's like the musicians it wasn't it had nothing to do with like the local regional economy of the musicians so there's a sense that like absolutely yeah the musicians not guilty of the great depression so they're absolutely swamped by these forces outside of their control and there is this sense that like if we don't do something, like, if all the musicians, all the violinists in America spend six years digging ditches, like, when they come back, they won't be great violinists. And you just well, won't, think, and, and it just blew my mind, sorry, just just to finish, it's like, it blew my mind yeah, just, yeah. like, looking at the numbers being floated by Congress today versus the number of, like, not even, like, economic activity, but, like, 
of wages, and even if I've overestimated that, so like let's say it's not 30 billion in total, it's like 15 billion because there's managers and I'm including stuff. This is all like employment categories from the census. There's nothing like that amount of money that's being talked about in a substantive way. And it does feel like in this moment where as much as where the government has proven an inability to do anything and also a level of like corruption and state violence that makes you want to question whether it is possible for the government to do things in a moral way, given its relationship to like white supremacy and oppression at the same time, there simply isn't anyone in American society, any institution in American society that is actually going to step up and fill a gap like that. Like I went through a set of like funds Spotify has a fund. Um, SoundCloud has a fund. The Performing Arts thing has a fund. For musicians. The Jazz Foundation has a fund. Yeah, yeah, To support musicians. And it's like, you can get $1,000. You can get $3,000. And it's like, these are people that make thirty dollars to $50,000 a year. And it's going to be two years. And you add all that together. And it's like, no one's talking about anywhere close to the amount of money that's necessary to, to make to make a, a real dent and and going back and looking at like how much the the WPA is five percent of the American GDP. <laughs> that's so much money, and it's in the thirties, and and it's just it's it's depressing, frankly. I find I found it really depressing. Yeah, I guess I'm sort of like a you know like. Uh, 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 somewhere in the red to black pilled, like sort of on the left side of things, <laughs> like my 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 lefty purple pill, and so like I'm not like surprised, but like equally depressed, but I'm also like not surprised. But I think the thing about reading Professor Bendis's book and reading about this time period that I was most surprised by was while there was the very real material interest in like we need to get people jobs because we can't have like that many people unemployed there was also like a real effort and this was a huge aspect of the federal music project and the other arts projects of just like like a concern for the emotional psychological like well-being of people and like realizing that like music is like a way in which you could like uplift people or like have them escape or whatever for like a brief period of time you know, in the face of this, like, complete, like, economic, like, collapse. And it's, like, stated by, like, the Secretary of Commerce. It's, like, something that's, like, written into, like, the the bill. You know, like, this, it's stated to the public. Like, this is, like, what we want to do, you know? And then this whole idea, which, like I, you know, like I said in our interview, feels strangely nationalistic in a kind of an uncomfortable way, but this whole idea of, you know, I'm looking forward, of, yeah, you have the Secretary of Commerce, Harry Hopkins, saying in regards to how less tangible pro- projects could provide more worthy contributions, perhaps in establishing in some ways a new base of American life. And it's just like such a, like a, an interesting, you know, way of like approaching policy in this sort of like we actually, you know, wow, actually care about like the well-being of these people. Shocker, <laughs> you know, and not in a way like how do we put money in their pocket, but like how do we like employ them? do our best to get money in their pocket, but also, like, give them, like, something in their life that will, like, bring, like, joy and contentness and, like, you know, yeah, 
then this is the awkward part, like feel proud to be an American or like, you know, even that being a part of the conversation on a like federal political level is completely foreign to me in my life other than like, you know, maybe the waxing poetics of like Obama, but you know, there, he wasn't instituting projects on such a level like this to actually, like, back it up and, like, see it in real life. I mean, it's also interesting because for them, right, especially given how the Federal Music Project pans out, at least some of that belief is partially because they're... I mean, I don't know about Harry Hopkins in particular, but it seems like certainly Sockloff and presumably, like, FDR and some of these Nicholas Sokoloff just to be clear just to remind everybody was the head of the Federal Music Project um Sokoloff and and presumably like also some of these like elites who are running government it's like part of their faith in the ability of music to do that is tied towards a vision of like sacralized high culture music that is like the best and greatest of human experience in a vision, in like this very, very like whitewashed, very cl- tightly delineated vision of what music is that I, like I find abhorrent, but yeah, like European centric and like. But right. that's what right. gave them the belief that music mattered enough to that it could uplift people. <laughs> so it's this right. kind like of the, a two-edged the, sword. The, yeah. No, no, no. That that that's a great. That's a. Gr- I'm, I'm very glad that you like zeroed in on that very like key aspect because I think that you know, as, you know, we learned in the interview and, like, in reading the book and everything, it's, like, the stated intention is unreal to me to, to like, read that in print and, that like, and to, you know, research it that, like, politicians actually wanted this for the people. But when you put the microscope, like, a little closer, those people and that music is a very, very small, like, yeah, like, not really... Yeah, it's first of all, it's very like rooted in like the white supremacy and like racism in this country, but also like a very almost like sort of archaic Eurocentric style of music, which like when I think about, you know, anytime pre 1960s, like I don't think about, you know, American composers in like the 1930s. I think about like folk music, blues, jazz, as I think that probably most people our age and people that are, you know, older that like are into music at all think of the popular music. Now they don't think of that. You know, so it's like the stated intention was great, and like, it, but like, there's definitely it, it gets a little complicated as we zero in. And, and that dynamic that like they couldn't collect too much folk music, and I think they end up doing more of that. Like I read another. But also, they well, yeah, and there's one part in the book where they actually do they do put funding into a folk festival, I believe in North Carolina, but they ask that they that it's not advertised whatsoever that they're a part of it. So it's also weird. So they actually are supporting folk music, but actually. They don't want to be seen as supporting folk music, which, of course, also as he, as the pref- professor like that we talked to, noted, also had political implications because there was this, the Red Scare and communism and everything, and obviously folk music was a little bit. More they were communists. Yeah, let's not. Like, let's be like real, come on, sure. like they were like the Popular Front was real. They were communists at least. Right. Like. Maybe they weren't like revolutionary like Maoists or like Marxist Leninists. They weren't anarchists who like bombed their anarchists, but like Woody Guthrie is a social, like a socialist who wants the redistribution of wealth and like and land and land. land is your land. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, yeah, um, and yeah, yeah. I think I think you make good points though, like in relating it back to this time and like you know it. It seems as we noted in the interview, it just seems like such a fantasy to see something like that. 
And I don't know, Tim, do you, just on a personal level, do you sometimes, like, feel like the answers to, like, appeasing the masses, if you're a politician, like, or, like, the president or, you know, the governor or whatever, actually seem quite, like, simple? And, like, you kind of feel like you could probably, like, create a program or do something in which, like, people would probably be really appeased by? But there, and yet, it like, is. I mean, like, the, the right now for artists, there is, like, a soft UBI. I mean, that's just true. Like... That's going to run out at the end of July. And and the real question is, what's going to happen? And this is like, I mean, it's very strange. It's like, what is going to happen when the money runs out and and we don't know? I mean, I feel like the, the lack of knowledge about that like makes me want to almost like table it. Because it's like, yeah, there won't be any musicians if all the money runs out and they can't work. Like... I actually wanted to, to, to take it in a slightly different direction um, and, and see, like, imagine, like, as a thought experiment, like, imagine there was a federal music project for now, right? Like, imagine you had a WPA-style thing, which is not outside the realm of possibility, and it's a huge omnibus bill, and they have, like, cultural work um, included in that. And then you get this kind of really interesting question, sets of questions, it seems to me, about, like, what does, like, what does a music industry look like if music is such a for-profit thing, if all of a sudden music workers are able to actually, like, make, you know, no, like, like they're similar to WA, like, they're allowed to, like, their their goal is to, like, play music for the communities and how much music can they play for the communities but their goal is not to make money from this kind of music like what does hip-hop look like if all of a sudden you can get you're a producer or a rapper and you can get money from the federal government to make music for your community and all your only metric is like how many people in the community have you reached and have you uplifted them with American themes? <laughs> Actually, we, we were we were texting the other day, but I was reading uh, an essay by Lukash, and you know he he proposes the same the same thing is like what happens to art when it suddenly becomes commodified and the idea of capital is injected to it, you know, and so what happens when you remove that? You know, and like what become like what is the art? You know, and it's like and artists are able to actually like freely explore that art, not in like direct criticism or in direct relation to trying to not sorry, not in direct criticism of capitalism and the systems, or not a part of it either, or not with this onus where like you need to sell it, and it, it's a commodity. Like what becomes of it? And it's a very like you you know, kind of like end of communism utopian sort of idea. You know, but it it does it does. You, you do want to suggest that given that freedom, not having to worry about sales like we like, you know, uh, or the charts necessarily, like we, we mentioned in our last episode, it feels like a thousand years ago at this point. <laughs> um, you know, you do think that it would be maybe some small sort of what the you know politicians of the 1930s wanted in their, when they started these arts projects, that it might be some sort of like, musical renaissance awakening you know and like if you're just given that possibility but uh what do you think it would no, look can't like have that you can't can't allow for that no, no, can't but, what, for but that. What, what do you what do you think it would look like it's not gonna happen but what do you think it would look like yeah no i, pre I appreciate the question because i feel as if you know the uh 
the lack of a utopian imagination is definitely real in popular culture and you know even just in conversations with people which is of course is not their fault it's because of like the you know material reality of our or, lives or let me let me put it another uh, way let me put it in a slightly more believable <laughs> version there's this level of unemployment until the end of coronavirus and there's a widespread vaccine so for the next two years anyone who was working in the arts sector can continue to get basically a ubi like it's not a ton of money but you're not like you're able to pay some of your bills you're able right and there's loan forgivenesses and stuff and it's two years where like kind of if you want to be an artist you can make you know you're kind of okay what does that look like yeah, I mean, I think if you pair that, and this is <laughs> this is a kind of like interesting answer that kind of goes through the back door, but if you pair that with the very American entrepreneurial like individualism, I think you get and you know the like the fact that you you know just figure it out and like do what you can like kind of mentality, the bullheaded mentality that I feel like you know is a cliche, but actually I feel like kind of um, it's very real. And I think it's like, you know, how we're often described across the pond and elsewhere. I think you see a ton of innovation and a ton of really interesting, uh, events and endeavors that, you know, create a real sort of community. And I think that on every level, I think you see, you know, the, the small, you know, experimental garage rock hip-hop group in like east flatbush like doing all kinds of crazy things and then i think you see it even on a bigger level where you see like expansion of like of uh concerts and events and whatnot well i guess we couldn't because of coronavirus but you know i think you see a lot of like huge innovation and i think that it is very possible i think that the state of the stated intentions of the politicians in you know creating the federal music project in the 30s of like kind of and Nicholas Sokoff who led it and kind of wanting to like bring about this awakening in like American culture when it came to music I think you definitely like see that and you see it on a level that would be extremely diverse and extremely experimental and extremely like uh, expansive. One of the things that is also like remarkable about this moment for musicians um, and for lots of people where like that there is this like we this last couple months for a lot of people have been this weird float right like they're getting unemployment the walls aren't it's not forever they know that they don't everything is changing they know that right now it's like they're like shopping is scary but there's food in the shelves and like there's government money some government money not a ton not enough but like some um and I, I feel like a lot of people I know have been making a lot of art <laughs> in that. It, gosh, that's, <laughs> I know for me, I have probably spent like, yeah, more time focused on my creative work than like any other time in my life. And I, I have a lot, I have produced a lot of work. It's all still very much in like a, like, you know, early stages, but like when I want to turn my focus to something and really expand on a project, I have so much right now that I think that I definitely would have taken me a lot more time if I was like having to go to work and didn't wasn't on the uh the federal dole as well was as we'll say yeah no and I just wonder like what that that kind of that lack of competition is kind of in some ways the flip side of what you were just saying right the sense that like people 
in a weird way, have had a little bit of time. Some some people have had a little bit of time these last three months in a way that like American competitive capitalism, which is always like, what have you done? How much have you produced? What are you doing? What's next? What are you working um, on? FOMO, all that. Yeah. Like hasn't quite been happening. And in, in some ways, that's one of the reasons why like, I think like a British style dole, like most times in American history is unthinkable. <laughs> Because, like, it's so deeply ingrained, this competitive mindset is so deeply ingrained in our culture in so many ways. But, so, yeah, so, I mean, there is a question, like, is this just a point of exception? Or is it, like, you know, there, if you look at the economic impact of these industries, right? Like, if they're worth saving, they're worth supporting. <laughs> and if, like, all you need, like, it's, the U.S. make, the U.S. culture industries makes more than agriculture in America, significantly more significantly more yeah i believe that um and so like you know like if this was a way to make things more productive in the long run if you did get a burst of innovation but no it is it it would in some ways i think that what you said before about like why is this so difficult to imagine speaks to how deeply ingrained the commodification of of art and specifically the commodification of music is in our society um and also speaks especially good. Oh, so it commodification of music in our society, especially in this weirdness of coronavirus, where in some ways the flip side of commodified music is um, is live music, right? Where you can get like a community in a semi-utopian sense, but that's also that's also been removed. So what you're left with is like the the husk of this commodified thing in this moment where it's not quite possible to make money as a musician, but what you're producing is the commodity. It's not like the semi-utopian, transgressive, transcendent life performance aspect of it. It's not the community. It's like the Zoom call. (laughs) It's the MP3. And that is part of the weirdness of it is that in some ways it's, like you said, it's like pulling the the, the money and the capital out of this like commodity commodity form um, and for a huge number of musicians not the top musicians not like uh takashi 69 who is uh on the top of the charts with a Nicki minaj cosign but like i think it's yeah I, th- I think it's i think it's i think you're exactly right and i think that a lot it's also why a lot of artists are sort of lost it's like it's if there's not like the sort of competitive commodified aspect of it but there's not but we're able to retract ourselves from that but not because of some sort of like you know, um, massive positive upheaval towards, you know, some new utopia, but instead we're doing it because we're, you know, thousands of people are dying because of a virus. It becomes very difficult for us to to know why and how to make art and find that inspiration for some people. Um, And also I think that that also makes this time period that we discussed in this episode so fascinating that even though it was a very the money that went towards the federal arts project and the projects that they funded was very specific in mind and in goal and in sound and aesthetic. Uh, it, it, it still is a pretty unique and unusual moment in American history. And as we all toil away and, uh, slowly move towards the end of our, uh, of our unemployment status. I think a lot of us are wondering like what's next and it, it, you can't help but kind of look towards something maybe positive every now and then when, after reading all those, uh, negative headlines. Um, but yeah, I think we'll probably leave it at that. We've been talking for quite a bit and that was a lot. And so 
yeah, we are Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird. I'm Sam Backer. And yeah, <laughs> uh, the music by Burned Language. We'll see you in two weeks' time. <laughs> <laughs>